This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good late afternoon and early evening, dear listeners. We are live with Teachers Talk Radio today. It is Sunday, the 22nd of October, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is Bletchley Park and coding. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. This is my 51st radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself to any new potential listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since August 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages as well as humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on X Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. Today, I would like to focus on one topic that is very fresh and relevant to me as an educator and personally in my daily life, as I've just been back from a visit to Bletchley Park near Milton Keynes. So the podcast and discussion will be on the topic of Bletchley Park and coding. This is mostly relevant to teachers and educators, parents and children or students, people interested in coding, history, and the World War II, and the curious and well-informed in general. So Bletchley Park and coding. First, I have to explain why this is an important um, place to visit Bletchley Park. Most people have heard of Bletchley Park, but they might not know how important this has been in our history, in our world history, to be honest. Bletchley Park, before the 1930s, used to be an English country house, uh, just a normal estate where um, some very wealthy people could spend their leisure time. The mansion was constructed in the 1880s by a very wealthy man, a a finance uh, man and a politician called Sir Herbert Lyon. And the style, I mean, that wasn't too much to my liking, but some people like it. It was a Victorian Gothic with a mix of Tudor and Dutch Baroque. So it's got a lot of things going on. And if you walk inside the estate in the mansion, you will see a lot of box ceilings and gold colors and lots of carvings. Everything is wood paneled and it can be a bit oppressing if you, if you do not like this style. But Obviously, this is not why Bletchley Park is relevant to us today. Bletchley Park 
is an important historical site for anyone because Bletchley Park during World War II was a very, very important secret services location. This estate has been chosen because it was not inside London and it was a little bit further away in the countryside and it was relatively quiet and unknown. And it housed the Government Code and Cipher School, GCNCS, which was tasked with um, spying on the enemy, which was um, the Japanese, the Italians and the uh, Nazis in order to be informed of their next moves, to be preemptive about the next move of the enemy. So this team served the Axis powers, uh, so was spying on the Axis powers, as I said, German, Germany and Japan and some um, also Italians, whereas they were working for the British and France and America in the, in the end of the, at the end of the war. So you might be quite familiar with the most famous figurehead of uh, code and cipher. And this is obviously Alan Turing, but there was all other very important figures such as Gordon Welshman, Hugh Alexander, Bill Tutt and Stuart Milner Barry. So if you're really into coding, you are very, very aware of who these people are. But today I want to talk about all the other people who had a very important impact on our world history, all based at Betchley Park. So Betchley Park was a secret location all the way until the late 70s and 80s. So this is why it's only come to the fore recently uh, particularly if you're a um, film fan, you will have watched The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch, which was made 10 years ago now in 2014. But if you do not know about Alan Turing or uh, The Imitation Game movie biopic about his life, you might not even realise how important Bletchley Park was. So Bletchley Park was a very important location to spy on the enemy. But it was also the place of invention of something we need and we use every day. I could bet that you have next to you, or maybe a five meters away from you, at least a TV or a mobile phone or a computer or a laptop or even, even a Kindle. If you do have one of these devices, you are using technological advances that were made because of what happened in Bletchley Park. These devices would not exist without the work that was made in the 1930s and 40s in Bletchley Park near Milton Keynes. So this is major work because everybody has a mobile phone nowadays. So what happened clearly in Bletchley Park? It was a very unusual situation where you had thousands of people working non-stop, they only had very few breaks and um, the odd weekends to rest, take thousands of people highly devoted to protect their country, which was under attack because England was under attack from Germany, take thousands of people, put them in a, on an estate on a maybe a hundred hectares of land and give them a task spying on the enemy using coding and this is what they did for 
from 1938 onwards till the end of the war. And it kept happening later on. All the devices that were made and processed and used were still used in the Cold War, which is where Bletchley was not spoken about until the late 80s. Bletchley Park is the birthplace of ULTRA, which was an intelligence gathering program. And also it culminated in the development of Colossus. So Colossus is very important. Colossus is the world's first programmable digital electronic computer. So you can see how ahead England was in the 1930s and 40s. Now, after the war, we, um, we didn't talk about Bletchley Park and its importance because some of its invention was still used, as I said, during the Cold War. And it's only in the late 80s and 90s that we started to mention it. A lot of people worked at Bletchley Park, never mentioned their work to their husband, to their partners, to their wives, to their children. It was a very well-kept secret. But now the beauty is that you can go on site at Bletchley Park and read all about it. And there is so much to read. You could, you could easily spend a whole day in the estate reading about all these people's lives and their inventions. So I'm advising you as an educator, as a parent, to book your next trip to Milton Keynes and Bletchley in order to show your children and your students how wonderful this place is. So as I said, historically, this was just an estate, a beautiful um, house built in the 1880s uh, with a lovely pond or, I mean, a lovely lake, some very nice hills and beautiful views. So as I said, the estate is uh, 581 acres, which is 235 hectares, and it belonged to Sir Herbert Samuel Lyon. Um, he had a very nice life there. He changed the house a little bit, added a bathroom for his wife at one point. That was the height of modernity and luxury. But when he died, Sir Herbert Lyon, in 1926, the estate was then given to his widow, Fanny Leon, and she died there in 1937. She's the lady who got a very nice modern bathroom on the first floor. So um, Fanny Leon died and the house was on sale. It was unused for a couple of months until May 1938, when a man, Admiral Sir Hugh Sinclair, who was the head of the Secret Intelligence Service, so this is the origins of MI6. So if you're a James Bond fan, he was obviously the top, the head of the secret services. So he bought the mansion and added another 23 hectares of land for £6,000. Can you imagine that? £6,000 for a mansion and hectares of land. You can tell that inflation has been rising over the years when you realize that you could buy an estate for £6,000 in the 1930s. So nowadays, the sum would be around £400,000, which is still nothing when you think about it. And so he established that this estate would be used for spying and gathering information. And because he was a very wealthy man, he used his own money 
he didn't want um, to the government to spend the money on buying the land, and he was already a wealthy man, so very kindly donated uh, £6,000 uh, in the 30s to buy land for his country. Now, what was good about Bletchley's uh, location is that it's quite central. There was a railway station, Bletchley Railway Station, which is still in operation now. And uh, it's in between Oxford and Cambridge. It's not far from London. And you can also uh, have connections if you want to go as far as Birmingham and Manchester or Liverpool, Glasgow and Edinburgh. So it is central. It's not in London because, remember, there was always a risk of putting your... um, secret missions in London uh, due to bombing by the, um, the the Germans. So it was a good idea to go in the countryside, but not be too far. So Bletchley Park was known as BP, not a very original acronym, of course, um, and people who worked there used it as BP. Sometimes it was called Station X, because um, X after the Roman numeral 10. But most people also talked about it as Bletchley. Now, obviously, uh, after the war, it was decommissioned and every sign of um, the barracks and the, the, the working areas were erased. They didn't want people to know what had happened, so they hid everything. And this is why it took a lot of work from the, the designers of the museum to bring back all the details. There was even someone who was in charge of analyzing the paint that used to be on the walls and they chose the exact same palette of colors. Um, so it's bottle, a kind of bottle green on the, on the woodwork inside. The walls are painted a white creamy, creamy white and you can still see that they use um, a tint to make it a bit smoke taint, tainted to show uh, the passage of time. So there, there was a, a very big work uh, from the historians to make uh, Bletchley look the way it used to be in the 40s. So in 1990, the site could have been sold to become a housing development, but Milton Keynes Council stepped in and changed it to a conservation area. So thank, thank God they realized the potential, the historical potential. So Bletchley Park Trust was founded in 1991, and now it's been dis- recognized as a very, very important site for the history of computers, um, s- secret services, intelligence gathering, and also for the history of World War II. And now, obviously, it is a museum that is accessible most days, every year. But before we dive into what happened in Bletchley Park, we need to look at the definition. We have now an idea of where Bletchley Park is, near Milton Keynes. We know it was an estate with a Victorian uh, Gothic architecture. We know there was beautiful hills and a lake. Uh, It was a very genteel house. But what happened afterwards when Fanny Leon died and um, the head of MI6 bought the land? Well, first, let's look at the word coding. Coding means a process of assigning or giving a code to something to classify or identify it. So coding might have started a very long time ago, as as long as someone wants to give a symbol to something else. Um, 
in um now we we use uh, genetic coding in biochemistry as well when we talk about dna because dna is um is a amino acid protein but we can also use coding to um determinate it but in general coding is the process of assigning a code to something now humans have been coding for a very long time it didn't start in bletchley park it started as far back as uh, ancient greece in 16 ad so after the birth of jesus um, there was heron of alexander who was a greek mathematician and engineer and he started uh, using coding so this was in order to control puppets this is a strange setup for thinking about coding but he just designed a machine with strings and each string was meant to represent a movement for the puppets and each string was different so each string is a different action and he devised a system where you could program the strings and you could make sure that the puppets would always make this gesture when this string was pulled. And that's basically the birthplace of coding and programming and reprogramming. So from here, we go up approximately 1,700 years without much progress in the idea of programming and coding you have to wait for very industrious minds in the victorian era men who wanted to um, automatize and make industry flourish so they looked at what was very uh, consuming as far as the workforce was concerned and it was mostly uh, lace making fabric weaving and uh, silk weaving so anything that involved fabrics was very technical and you needed a lot, of, a lot of pair of hands to be able to make fabric or lace and these industrious men in the victorian era decided to use machines to just produce more fabric with less workforce involved so in um, programming, the big leap was with Monsieur Jacquard, Joseph Mary Jacquard, who invented a machine. And obviously, um, hence his name, he is a Frenchman, Joseph Marie Jacquard. So he invented a machine to create prints, prints that he would use for rugs and carpets. And that was in the 18th century. So the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the Proto-Industrial Revolution started in uh, little workshops all over England and France. And this man, he used a machine again, and he worked on metal punch cards. So when there's a hole, it means something. And when there's no hole in the card, it means something else. So this is the beginning of binary systems. Uh, so the machine could read and weave a pattern according to the holes on the punch cards. And then you could change the cards and you would change the pattern. And that was it. That was reprogramming, programming and coding. Now, the history of coding, as I said, is 2000 years old, but you had to have very um, creative minds to um, make it go further. So we have to wait for the 19th century with the works of a lady. And I love the fact that it's a woman who um, brought programming ahead, and it was Ada Lovelace. 
Uh, Ada Lovelace was born in 1815 and she was an English mathematician and writer. And she started working on a project which became the world's first computer program. And she um, also inspired her best friend, Charles Babbage, and he invented the analytical engine. So these people are the people who made coding develop and uh, get more analytical. So the development of programming languages was developed from that time in the Victorian era after Ada Lovelace and Babbage's works were published. But you have to wait all the way till the 30s to see a very urgent need to improve coding and programming. And this need was linked to um, the radicalization of Germany and to the threat of war in Europe. And coding started before the war started. The Germans had invented a machine, the Enigma machine, and the English and the Polish and the French were aware of the dangers that this represented. So it basically is a wonderful thing. It's collaboration between European um, spy and intelligence services that allowed the UK to become uh, the, for, the forerunner in the race towards programming. And after the, the Second World War, we had to wait for the 50s and a lot of people worked on these war programs, ended up in the United States working on the first uh, computers. So it is really interesting when you visit Bletchley Park to see how many um, people were involved in the program. If you just think about Alan Turing, then you're having a very short-sighted vision of what coding is. Alan Turing was a genius, but he was not working on his own and he couldn't have done it on his own. The story of coding, the story of deciphering and breaking codes is about collaboration, international collaboration, working together, encouraging and fostering creativity, and also working with women. It's a very feminist um, industry in that way. So before I dive into the nitty gritty of what happened at Bletchley Park during the Second World War, I'm just going to let you listen to uh, today's news. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. 
The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian reports on AQA plans to have pupils complete parts of some exams digitally in 2026. The announcement from England's biggest exam board means exams could begin to look very different, as it says it will begin testing GCSE students on laptops for a small number of courses from next year. Parts of GCSE Italian and GCSE Polish by 2026 with other subjects, potentially English, likely to be included by 2030. The exam board said technology and change are two constants in education and that moving describing it as encouraging, as reliance on pen and paper was outdated, but others have been less convinced. Melissa Pruntig, chair of the National Handwriting Association, made the link between handwriting, reading and spelling, particularly at ages between four and six. She also said that the key to writing, either by hand or typing, was speed and fluency and pointed out that it's not something that you can just roll out and think it's inclusive. You have to teach typing and it needs practice. Since the announcement, professionals and researchers, as well as teachers, have continued the debate on social media. Secondary school performance data for England has been in the headlines, with the TES magazine presenting analysis of the results after a three-year pandemic hiatus. The article highlights a variety of trends and points to consider but also warns against making basic comparisons between schools as many face ongoing disruptions post-COVID. The key points include a widening of the disadvantage gap, now at its widest since 2011. Unions, school leaders and educational researchers all expressed dismay at this and called on government and prospective governments to make this a core focus moving forward. EBAC entries have stagnated in the latest figures. The Department for Education has set a target of students entering the EBAC subjects at 75% for 2024 and 90% in 2027. The new data shows that current figures are at 39.3%, with languages continuing to be the main stumbling block. Regional differences also remain. The North East has the lowest average Progress 8 score and Outer London has the highest. This north-south gap has increased since the pandemic. However, some more detailed analysis of like-for-like -like schools in the north and south suggests comparable outcomes when other factors such as prior attainment are taken into consideration. There was a difference in progress for boys and girls, with girls achieving an average of one-tenth of a grade more than expected. Attainment 8 also dropped as a result of Ofqual's approach to returning exams to normal following COVID. Full details of the TES analysis can be found online. 
The Guardian also carried a report on changes to how poor behaviour will be responded to in the state of California in the United States. At least 25 states and the District of Columbia allow schools to suspend pupils for willful defiance. But California has become the first state to ban such suspensions for all students. The definition of willful defiance has been criticised by US education researchers as being overly broad. And they have also made links to the use of suspensions being disproportionate in some ethnic groups. The article prompted debate on X, formerly known as Twitter, amongst many in education, although the impact of California's discussions and decisions will only be revealed over time. Finally, the BBC reports that blue shirts and chinos have been banned by Cardiff University Students' Union due to dangerous behaviour from some students. Any people wearing the outfit, typically associated with some sports clubs, will be refused entry to its Wednesday night club night. The student union has said the measure is temporary and in response to the behaviour of some male students earlier this month. Since the ban, a marked improvement in behaviour has been seen. The ban does not apply to any buildings other than the students' union, which acts independently of the university. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listeners. Some uh, interesting elements about the influence of uh, uniform wearing and behaviour there. Uh, talking about fabric and clothing. Let's go back to coding. So the history of coding is really interesting because it starts from what we would see as threads. And um, we can we can say that it there's a, just a step from the silk weavers of Shoreditch in uh, London all the way to Silicon Valley. And the difference is just the tool because they were using the same system. When you think about weaving, at its core, it's just a system of up or down. So one thread goes over another one and then goes under another one. Um, but it's the same system with what Jacquard, Joseph-Marie Jacquard, did with his punch cards. There's a hole or there isn't. It's an on or an off. It's a yes or no. It's a one or a zero. So it's a binary system, which is at the base of all our computer programming. So this is the same system that was transferred to different areas of expertise, such as Morse coding. And then you have it in um, the, the lace making. I mentioned um, lace because if you are aware, there is still one or two places where we still use lace looms and they are in Calais. If you can go to the Musée de la Dentelle, Museum of Lace in Calais, it's a wonderful place. That talks about the history of the town, but also the, the, the world history of lace making. And um, the, the lace was, um, is still made and produced on machines that are 100 years old, mostly British-made machines that take a whole room. And these lace machines are used for expensive lingerie brands. And they were also used to make the veil for Kate Middleton when she married Prince William. So we still have um, the same appeal into these old uh, traditional uh, jobs, lace making, and, um, and our current um, royals. 
So the link between Victorian needlework and computing is that system of weaving and binary system and the punch cards. So I'm going to quote Ada Lovelace, who was a countess, by the way, and she predicted the digital revolution as far back as 1893. And she said, I quote, we may say most aptly that the analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns, just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. Now, if you visit the Museum of Lace Making in Calais, in France, you will see how complicated pattern making for these lace looms was. It's just incredibly difficult to visualize, just the same way as a computer program is. Now, Going back to Bletchley Park in um, the pre-war years, 1938-1939. So Europe knew bad times were coming. There was a, a wind of distress, a winter of discontent that was brewing. So in December 1932, um, some, some people in the Eastern Europe, in Poland notably, started trying to break uh, the Germany's Enigma machine. The Enigma machine looks like a typewriter, but it's a proto-computer um, in the sense that you have a keyboard with um, alphabet letters, and for each letter, you can change uh, to another letter. And you have you had at the time three rotors, so you had three levels of um, change. So these um, ciphers were used by the, British, the German uh, army. Now, Polish people were very aware of the risk that Germany caused to their country, and they started uh, working against the Enigma machine. They were Polish cryptologists, and they, they created a great mach machine to combat the Enigma machine. And their machine was called the Bomber. Um, nothing to do with bombing or bombs. Uh, bomber, we don't really know the origin of the word. We think it might mean either the name of the ice cream that the cryptologists used to eat after breaking a code, or the expression bomba, which means great in Polish. So we are not sure, but it's definitely a positive word. So five weeks before World War II started uh, with... Um, the invasion of other countries, Czechoslovakia, for instance, in by Germany, we had the Polish Cipher Bureau, which had a meeting with French uh, spies and uh, British uh, intellig intelligence services, and they shared intelligence. And I think that's beautiful. To me, that's a symbol of a European mind there. Against a, a common enemy, they decided to share knowledge. And, and I think there's nothing better as a symbol of Europe uh, collaboration, European co collaboration. So we had French, British and Polish military intelligence who met in 1939 in July and they exchanged knowledge about the German Enigma machine. And this is the beginning of the uh, Bletchley Park coding process. They were being preemptive, the Polish. They wanted to make sure Germany would be stopped and collaboration really works. So the bomber was the Polish machine. I am not 
technologically savvy and I'm not very good at maths, but I admire uh, human ingenuity. So the bomba was basically a decoding machine. It's a very complicated system. I'm not going to explain how it works today. I just want you to know that it was uh, the first machine was built by a Polish group, the Polish Cypher Bureau. And without their work, other British uh, geniuses such as Alan Turing would not have been able to be so effective in their fight against the Nazis. So it started in Poland and it's, it was spread during that meeting in July 1939. And it, then it grew and got nurtured and supported in Bletchley Park. So, as I said, the Enigma machine was a German invention from 1932. It had a keyboard, rotors, and it's, it was used to create codes, basically. Um, it was available commercially uh, from early as uh, the 1920s and was modified regularly by the German army. Now, um, obviously, the people who worked on breaking that, that machine's process were Guido Langer, uh, Maximilian Czeski and Stefan Meyer, and they were the Polish Cypher Bureau. Now, they um, re recreated a pre cryptologic machine, and then they shared it to a French major, Gustave Bertrand, Henri Braconnier, who was the head of the French Air Force, and also the British commander, Alastair Denniston, head of Britain's government code and cypher school. And this is the man who um, was working at Bletchley Park, Government Code and Cipher School, GCCS. And present at that meeting in Poland was Dili Knox, who was uh, quite a character, and we'll talk about him at a later stage. Now, there comes um, the Polish bomb machine, or bomber machine, and then we have the brilliant mind of Alan Turing. So if you haven't watched The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch, can you please watch it tonight? Have some popcorn and dive into it. It's a great movie and you will know how badly Alan Turing was treated by his own government um, about his personal life and how wonderful his um, contribution was to a worldwide uh, history and to our modern day lives because we use computers all the time. So Alan Turing was born in London in 1912 and he died in 1954 in Cheshire. He was a British mathematician, logician, and he made major contributions to mathematics, philosophy, logic, biology, computer science, cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and artificial life. All of this in a quite a relatively short life. So he was obviously an educated at the University of Cambridge. Uh, he was a very bright man. He was also privately educated and he went to teach at King's College um, where he worked on probability theory, which would be very helpful in his coding and decoding against the Nazis. So I mentioned the imitation game a few times. This is a great movie. You can show it to your students. You can watch it with your kids and it's very informative. Um, now, what Alan Turing contributed to um, is that he used the bomber, the Polish bomber machine, but he also worked in finding finances to 
create his first uh, program and he wanted to call it Operation Victory. Now, Turing was good at getting the budget he needed. He got a £100,000 budget, which was massive at the time. Remember, when they bought the estate, it was £6,000 for 200 hectares and, a, and an estate and a mansion on it. So the fact that Alan Turing managed to get £100,000 of budget shows that the government recognised the importance of spying on the enemy and being preemptive and knowing and gathering intelligence. Intelligence is power, and I think you won't understand it unless you've visited Bletchley Park. So Alan Turing um, had a contract to build the Polish bombers, and he asked the British tabulating machine company, BTM, at Letchworth to make these uh, machines. Obviously, it had to be top secret. You didn't want the Germans to be aware that someone was creating a machine to um, decipher what they were encrypting, um, encrypting with their own Enigma machine. So everything had to be extremely secure, um, tight secret that no one was to share. The first bomber was named Victory, as I said, and it was installed in a newly built facility on the estate at Bletchley Park. It was called Hut One, and this is where Turing was working. You can go and visit his office. If you're expecting something grandiose, you'll be disappointed. It's got, um, it's made out of bricks, painted white. It's got wooden floorboards and not, not the posh ones. Uh, very crude. They look like scaffolding um, boards. It's very cold. And um, it was a very, very Spartan, frugal workplace. But this is where he made his magic. Um, and I'm going to pass you all the details, but he was able to decipher a lot of the encrypted messages that the Nazis were sending to one another. And this was very successful as long as the Enigma machine was only using two rotors. As soon as they made their Enigma machines more complicated, then we had periods of time when we couldn't decipher what the Germans were doing. Um, so they had to make a new bomber machine, which they called Agnus Dei. And then they shortened the name Agnus Dei to Agnes and then Aggie. Uh, lots of code names, obviously. Um, and then we realized that we needed more staff because there were so many messages to translate and to decipher. So more and more buildings were built and you can still visit them. They're still there. So during 1940, there was 178 messages that were uh, deciphered on the two machines and almost completely successfully. So these messages could tell you when there would be a bombing, um, what uh, movements the troops would make, uh, where an attack would happen. So it was not just a crossword. It was about saving lives. It was about knowing what the enemy was going to do first. So it was an extremely important um, job, all kept in secrets. Um, so at the end, uh, in 1941, there was 30 machines, 30 bomber machines working full time, day and night. And when I say these machines, they were not small machines. They were almost like a big 
cabinet or a big cupboard filled with um, moving parts and constantly turning they were operated with oil and they were clicketing all the time and you had to have a member of staff at the front and a member of staff at the back one was um, joining or plugging wires and the other one was making sure that all the parameters were correct so it basically looks like the inside of a computer but on a bigger much bigger scale the scale of a cupboard and these people who operated these bomber machines in Bletchley Park were mostly women. And this is what I love about the Bletchley Park experiment is that it was, um, it gave women a major role in something that is a very difficult intellectual uh, pursuit. So they were not just making bombs or driving cars or, um, or cleaning, there were involved in the war effort in the most uh, difficult and intellectual pursuit, that of deciphering messages. Um, you can still see a bomber machine in Bletchley Park. It's obviously um, not operative, but you can see a video showing and explaining how it works. Now, why have I decided to talk about Bletchley Park? because we have a very important anniversary coming. It's going to be the 80th anniversary of D-Day on the 6th of June. Um, so it, it happened in 1945, but it's going to be next year. And it's really important that we um, acknowledge the hardship that our ancestors went through and that we teach our students how war has always really been happening in Europe. I mean, it's still happening in Europe. Remember, Ukraine is part of uh, um, geographical Europe. So it's important we keep our students aware of the cost of war and the impact it has on all of us. And the, the I was going to say the funny thing, but it's not really funny. It's just the, the striking aspect of war is that it usually pushes human to to be extremely creative. And a lot of inventions that we take for granted in our daily lives stems from um, our experience of war. I'll give you an example. We have nurseries where we put our young children nowadays. They were invented in the First World War because men were dying on the French front in the trenches, women had to take the jobs of men and there was no one to take care of very young children and they were too little to go to school. So someone came out with the idea of um, having an institution that steps in and takes care of children. This is a First World War invention. And now we have programming, computer programming, coding, which definitely took um, a predominant place in the Second World War with Alan Turing at Bletchley Park, but because there was a need to fight the Nazis. And now we use programming on a daily basis in all the devices we use. And we're gonna see AI changing our way of life. But remember, Alan Turing was one of the first inventor of AI. So it all stems from human creativity and war is sadly the best time for humans to be creative because they have very uh, extreme deadlines and the word dead in deadline is very relevant in that context so bletchley park 
was a central site for British cryptanalysis. It housed the government code and cipher school, and it was populated by 7,500 women. They were working day and night on shifts, and they represented 75% of the workforce. I think it's wonderful. These women were usually um, underrepresented in high level of work, such as cryptanalysis, but they were employed in large numbers in other very important areas, such as operators, cryptographics, communications machinery, translators, traffic analysts, clerical workers, and so on and so forth. So these women have um, an acronym, which is lovely. The full acronym is Women's Royal Naval Service, uh, WRNS, and it got shortened as a very endearing poetic term, wrens. And we all know that wrens are little unassuming birds, European birds, but they are beautiful and, and they are unassuming, as I said, but they're also um, very important in our ecosystem. So these women, 7,500 of them, worked in secret and no one heard of them until the mid-1970s when wartime information became declassified. Remember, the bomber machines that Alan Turing and the Polish Cipher Bureau had created were still being used in the 60s during the Cold War because the Stasi, the secret police in West Germany, were still using the Enigma machines. So it was still very, very useful tools. I'm going to quote um, a young woman, Jocelyn, who worked at Bletchley Park. Um, she's not young anymore, obviously. She's in her 90s. But she just described how it felt to be in that weird environment that was filled with women working super hard for secret missions that no one was allowed to talk about. And yet they were all driven. So she said, I was very happy because I thought it sounded like it was going to be interesting. That's what Jocelyn thought when she got hired. And then she said, sometimes we would solve um, them in a day. By them, she means um, the um, decoding of messages. We would solve them in a day. Other times it would take weeks. We learned all our swear words there. Messages contained awful words and naughty sayings. I like that she saw the funny sides of it. Now, these ladies were working so hard that they almost got to know their opponents. There was one woman who said that she had learned German at university and she had focused on the best side of German um, writing, which was the romantic uh, German writers. And yet she had to now forget most about romantic literature and focus on German military terms. And she was so engulfed in listening and translating to the, all these encrypted messages that she started to know the modus operandi of some of the German operators. She even recognized some of these women, even recognized the way the Morse code operator typed. Some had a certain way of clicking and they knew who it was. One woman even could manage to find out that one of the operator had a girlfriend called Rosa. So it's strange to see that in Bletchley Park in England, you had women listening to encrypted conversations from German soldiers 
in Germany or in other parts of occupied Europe. And they got very close, even though they were on the opposite side and they were not aware that they were listened to. I find that fascinating. So I'm not going to explain the whole decoding process because I hope you're going to go and visit Bletchley Park and you will find out. It is extremely complicated and I salute anyone who is able to do this kind of very hard analytical code breaking work. But what you need to know is that these Wren women managed to gather so much information. They had information on German police messages. Some of them even had um, evidence that was used to identify the fact that the Holocaust was happening. They could paraphrase and decode Japanese messages. They also had to learn Japanese for some of their tasks. And they, they knew so much about weather patterns and weather reports from all over the world because they heard all these messages. But it was really helpful to gather enough intelligence to be able to attack uh, the U-boats, the, the Nazi U-boats or other fleets that were out in the ocean. So extremely important work these women were doing. So this is a feminist angle that I really love about Bletchley Park is that it was women doing the work and they kept it a secret and they made this work. It was highly demanding intellectual labor. The women sometimes were falling asleep in these very crowded rooms with the machines uh, smoking and the smell of oil and the clickety sounds, but they were always at their jobs. And they were basically women computers because they were plugging wires and they were turning knobs and cogs but they were almost like the cogs and the um, parts in, in our modern day computers. So extremely uh, difficult work that they were doing. And um, they, they had to check and recheck all the calculations by hand. Now, because I'm a language teacher, I'm always interested in linguistic angle as well. There were some beautiful gems of knowledge in the Bletchley Park um, Museum. Obviously, I mentioned the fact that we needed interpreters in um, German and also Japanese. But there was also uh, people who brought their knowledge, which seems like very niche knowledge, not particularly transferable. And yet they supported the war effort more than 10,000 soldiers on land. I'll give you an example. Alfred Dillwyn, known as Dilly Knox, he was born in 1884 and he died in 1943. He was a very high up uh, British classic scholar and he was a papyrologist. Now, if you don't know what a papyrologist is, it's someone who translates papyrus. So ancient Egyptian papyrus. So he was uh, at King's College in Cambridge and he was also, because of his linguistic knowledge of deciphering old papyrus, he became a code breaker. So he worked um, in World War I, he, he was in room 40, and uh, he helped uh, decrypt the Zimmerman telegram, which brought the USA into the First World War. And then when the Second World War started, he kept working again as chief cryptographer, and he worked at Bletchley Park. 
he was working on the Enigma ciphers until he died sadly in the middle of the war. So he could never tell. He, he didn't know if um, the British were going to win the war or not, which I find very sad. But he was extremely um, useful because with his techniques and his intelligence in translation, he managed to warn the Allies about the Battle of Cape Matapan and he saved thousands of lives. So it's interesting to see that if you encourage students to learn what they really love, it might be ancient Egyptian papyrus translations, but that might still be a wonderful transferable skill because linguistics is very technical and it's a code, a language is a code, isn't it? So we see the value of encouraging language learning in this example with Dilly Knox. Uh, and for the ones who are interested in gossip, he was um, romantically engaged, engaged with John Maynard's Keynes when he was at Eton. So it was it's always nice to see how these very famous historical figures knew one another and sometimes knew in a biblical sense. Now, before we go on to what is um, the heritage of Bletchley Park and why you should organise a school trip visit there, let's listen to the news. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian reports on AQA plans to have pupils complete parts of some exams digitally in 2026. The announcement from England's biggest exam board means exams could begin to look very different, as it says it will begin testing GCSE students on laptops for a small number of courses from next year. Parts of GCSE Italian and GCSE Polish by 2026 with other subjects, potentially English, likely to be included by 2030. 
The exam board said technology and change are two constants in education and that moving to digital exams is the next step. According to the Guardian report, pupils will still be supervised in an exam room and will be offline, so they will not be able to access search engines or artificial intelligence tools. Some head teachers have welcomed the move, with Askell describing it as encouraging, as reliance on pen and paper was outdated, but others have been less convinced. Melissa Prunty, chair of the National Handwriting Association, made the link between handwriting, reading and spelling, particularly at ages between four and six. She also said that the key to writing, either by hand or typing, was speed and fluency, and pointed out that it's not something that you can just roll out and think it's inclusive. You have to teach typing and it needs practice. Since the announcement, professionals and researchers, as well as teachers, have continued the debate on social media. Secondary school performance data for England has been in the headlines, with the TES magazine presenting analysis of the results after a three-year pandemic hiatus. The article highlights a variety of trends and points to consider, but also warns against making basic comparisons between schools as many face ongoing disruptions post-Covid. The key points include a widening of the disadvantage gap, now at its widest since 2011. Unions, school leaders and educational researchers all expressed dismay at this and called on government and prospective governments to make this a core focus moving forward. EBAC entries have stagnated in the latest figures. The Department for Education has set a target of students entering the EBAC subjects at 75% for 2024 and 90% in 2027. The new data shows that current figures are at 39.3%, with languages continuing to be the main stumbling block. Regional differences also remain. The North East has the lowest average Progress 8 score and Outer London has the highest. This north-south gap has increased since the pandemic. However, some more detailed analysis of like-for-like schools in the north and south suggests comparable outcomes when other factors such as prior attainment are taken into consideration. There was a difference in progress for boys and girls, with girls achieving an average of one-tenth of a grade more than expected. Attainment 8 also dropped as a result of Ofqual's approach to returning exams to normal following COVID. Full details of the TES analysis can be found online. The Guardian also carried a report on changes to how poor behaviour will be responded to in the state of California in the United States. At least 25 states and the District of Columbia allow schools to suspend pupils for willful defiance. But California has become the first state to ban such suspensions for all students. The definition of willful defiance has been criticised by US education researchers as being overly broad, and they have also made links to the use of suspensions being disproportionate in some ethnic groups. The article prompted debate on X, formerly known as Twitter, amongst many in education, although the impact of California's discussions and decisions will only be revealed over time. Finally, the BBC reports that blue shirts and chinos have been banned by Cardiff University Students' Union due to dangerous behaviour from some students. Any people wearing the outfit, typically associated with some sports clubs, will be refused entry to its Wednesday night club night. The Student Union has said the measure is temporary and in response to the behaviour of some male students earlier this month. 
Since the ban, a marked improvement in behaviour has been seen. The ban does not apply to any buildings other than the Students' Union, which acts independently of the university. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. So at Teachers Talk Radio, we always try to have our, our fingers on the pulse of the news in the educational world. You heard in the news brief that there was talks of having some of the GCSE exams on a computer, so to have a digital exam. I find it really striking that the first um, computer developed in the UK was stored and built at Bletchley Park. This was Colossus. Colossus was designed by Alan Turing and Tommy Flowers. Tommy Flowers worked for the General Post Office and they wanted a computer that could solve a mathematical problem. So Alan Turing, because he was so familiar with cryptanalysis and probability, he worked with Tommy Flowers. Tommy Flowers were more interested in radio and, and telephones, but they worked together and they created the first computer which was spe specialized in counting operations. And this Colossus used uh, vacuum tubes instead of a stored program, but it was on Bletchley Park that it was first used. In 1943, that was the first prototype of Colossus. So England is at the birth, um, is the birthplace of computers, if you think about that Colossus computer. And if you go to Bletchley Park, you will see it on display. There's a functioning rebuild of um, Type 2 Colossus that was completed in 2008 by Tony Sales and a team of very dedicated volunteers. So I think it's really relevant to think that we're talking about now having digital exams for all our youth. And Colossus was the first computer built in Bletchley Park in the middle of the Second World War. Why would you visit Bletchley Park with your students or your child? Um, first, it's a day out, and we lost the habit of organising days out since the COVID um, times. <coughs> My apologies. But I think it's important to have at least one school visit a term. Obviously, there is a good service with the train lines, but I, I can understand that a school visit is something difficult to organise. Now, the, the ticket to go to Bletchley Park is quite expensive. At the moment, it's half price, though, because there is a very important event that is being staged. Currently, at Bletchley Park, we're going to have the first artificial intelligence meeting regarding safety. So I think it's quite befitting because Alan Turing was a founding father of artificial intelligence and also cognitive science. And he was the first one who created the hypothesis that the human brain is not uh, unlike a digital computing machine. So there will be a summit on the 1st and 2nd of November of this year to work, on interna to work internationally on safety with AI. There will be representatives from the OECD, Global Partnership on AI, the Council of Europe and the United Nations, as well as G7 AI process. 
it is a very important thing to talk about safety because we know what humans are able to do. We know what circumstances Colossus and the bomber machines were created in, world wars. So we know how crazy some humans can end up being. So it is even more important that we are preemptive again, gathering as much knowledge as possible to prevent um, any more destruction. The UK is still a world leader in AI. This is a technology that employs over 50,000 people. And uh, it's important to, to promote this in the economy. We have very big companies having their headquarters here. We have the Google building being built near King's Cross. We need to be at the forefront of AI, but we also need to think about safety. So I think it's a beautiful idea to choose Bletchley Park as the safety in AI summit location. So on that note, I hope you found this interesting and um, I don't have any shares in Bletchley Park Trust, but I would sincerely advise you to, to go there for half term. It's a great location. You can have a picnic on the lawn near the lake. You can go for a walk in the estate and you can spend a, a huge amount of time reading about these geniuses who brought us coding and deciphering. And uh, extra salute to anyone who understands how to reproduce um, the victory machine and the bomber experiment, because it is very technical. I'm thanking you, dear listeners, and I hope you find this enlightening. And I will see you next Sunday to talk about something a little bit lighter, uh, paranormal in education. Have a lovely Sunday. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.